Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Justin, a.k.a. Just Tries, and we're always talking vulnerability, learning, and growth mindset. No sponsors yet, so go to justkeeplearning.ca for coaching and content geared toward helping you not just set goals, but achieve them too. We have a goal to help millions of people be lifelong learners and get their ambitions off the ground, so be sure to hit us up and let us know how we can help. Our guest today has done so many incredible things, it's hard to summarize, but most importantly, she has been a worldwide leader in mental health, mostly in the form of unconditional forgiveness and compassion. She's done this through her work with inmates on death row, and the early days of her work were profiled in an Academy Award-winning Hollywood movie called Dead Man Walking. She is a New York Times bestselling author of a number of books, River of Fire, The Death of Innocence, and Dead Man Walking. Whether it's writing, speaking, or social media, she always provides very informative and entertaining insights. With incredible life experiences in the world of lifelong learning, storytelling, and supporting both the victims and prisoners in very challenging crimes, let's just say she has seen a lot. It's one of those episodes that could be hours long and we should all be grateful for hearing her input on life. Like all of our guests, most importantly, she is an inspiring example of pursuing your passions, doing what you love first, while worrying about money second, and most importantly, being a good person along the way. We talked about death row, human behavior, empathy, and why it's so important to be non-judgmental in our lives. Please welcome Sister Helen Prejean. So thank you so much for joining us today. If you could tell, uh, let's say you were coming into a classroom I have, and I asked you to introduce yourself to a group of high school students, who would you say you are and what do you do? What's your story a little bit? I'm Sister Helen Prejean. I spend my life working to end the death penalty in the United States and around the world. Uh, you may have heard of me. I wrote a book called Dead Man Walking, and it was made into a great film that got Four nominations for the Academy Awards, and Susan Sarandon, who played me in the movie, got an Academy Award. And my job is because I have witnessed executions and because I have been with murder victims' families, my job is to tell that story, to help people to understand why we can't entrust to our government that right and that power over human life. And that's my job. And that's why I'm here today to talk to you. And it's so much to unpack as a story. I know that I've heard you speak before and we could go on. I'm sure you could write an entire book and conversation. Um, and so I'm just super excited to get into some details about that. Uh, one thing that strikes me off the bat is how did that become a movie in the first place? Was that something you pursued or did it just happen naturally? Most of the time, you have to wait a long time even before a movie might be made of a book. But Dead Man Walking came out in 93, and I did not pursue a movie at all. But I'll tell you how it happened, because Susan Sarandon, who's quite an activist, she really gets involved in the issues of the day. She read my book, and she called me in New Orleans. She had to come for a day of filming. She was filming a, 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 one of the Grisham films at the time, The Client. And he had a, the last scene of the movie was he fly out of an airport and it was New Orleans. She had to come to New Orleans. She calls me on the phone, introduces herself, said, I've read your book. We need a new kind of film, a deeper film about the death penalty. And your book is going to be it. Can I meet you? We met at a restaurant and set the plan. And I was thinking to myself, while we, we were eating at this really good Cajun restaurant in New Orleans, we got great restaurants, really great seafood, you know. 
And I was thinking as we sat at the table, man, how many people do this? You sit at the table, hey, let's make a movie. But I was sitting with Susan Sarandon, and it was different. And she's she had the passion to make the movie happen. And her partner at the time was Tim Robbins. And she pestered him for nine months and said, did you read the nun's book? Did you read Dead Man Walking? No, because he was working on other projects. And she believed in it so deeply. After nine months, they were walking on the streets of New York one night, and she took him by the arm and said, did you read the book? And he hadn't. And she burst into tears. And she said, Tim, if we're not going to do a film of that book, then we need to turn the book over to somebody who will, because this book needs to be a film, probably for domestic tranquility, probably broke down, had peace in the house. And read the book. And then he said it was the easiest screenplay he had ever written. And the reason is, I think, is because in the book, I take you over to both sides. You really got to get into the victim's suffering. You really got to get into the skin and heart of people who lost someone to violence and understand that they could say, I want to see that person cry. I want to see him die. But then you also want to get into the life of the one who did the terrible deed, and just also see that there's more to every human being than the worst thing they've ever done. And so Tim explained to me when the film came out, the difference between art and propaganda. See, propaganda is he's against the death penalty. If he was doing a propaganda anti-death penalty movie, you structure that whole movie from the beginning to the end. You do the crime early on, make it fuzzy, people forget, and then all the sympathy then is with the person about to be executed. But boy, he did a bold thing in that film. The last scenes are you see Matthew Ponsolet, the death row inmate, on the gurney being executed, and he's been through his journey, he's expressed remorse and all, but then side by side with that, he shows the killing he has an aerial view of Matthew Ponsolet in the woods, raping and killing one of the young people. And he puts them side by side. And the theater uh, managers told him that they had never shown a film where people just stayed seated to the end till the screen went blank and filed out quietly because they were thinking. So he puts it right in the lap of the audience to start it out. And he doesn't preach at them. We're four minutes in, and I almost feel um, some tears welling up because it's such a serious uh, subject and uh, not necessarily in an overly negative way, just because, as you put it, it makes me think. When, when you first referenced that scene, it made me think of the word conflicted. I'm sure many people get conflicted about this topic. When it comes to the idea of packaging that in a story, I haven't read the book, to be honest. See, I'm the one that was naive to that piece. I knew about the movie. And until I saw you speak, and for our listeners uh, may not know, I had the opportunity, what I consider a blessing. I'm super grateful to have heard you speak because it was one of the most touching public speaking events I've ever been to. And when I heard that, then I became interested in your story. And the only way I've been able to explain to many other people who you are is I have to reference the movie, right? We look at pop culture oftentimes. Yeah, that's right. Sure. I understand. Yeah, as this way to to tell that story. And that's just an interesting thing because um, it can be a tool, I suppose, is one way to put it. But what I'm curious about is when you wrote the book, because now I am going to go read the actual book, was it written in first person? Was it storytelling? Was it more documentary-based narrative? What, what, how did you, what does the book tell the stories as? It's just telling my story. First person, present tense. Actually, 
the writing of the book and the editor that helped me shape the story is the heart of this whole conversation. If I hadn't had that good editor at Random House, Jason Epstein, you never would have heard of the book. There never would have been a film. And the reason is, first person, I just start off... And I take you right with me, see? And and it kind of all unfolded in a very unusual way uh, because it starts off where I just say, when Chava Colon from the Prison Coalition asked me one January day in 1982 to become a pen pal to a death row inmate, I say, sure. See, we hadn't had an execution in Louisiana in 20 years. There'd been a moratorium starting in the 60s and 70s in the United States. I thought I was only going to be writing letters. And so then I take you right with me and just say, so, I write the letter, the person writes back, the next thing I know, I visit, and I end up being with him when he's executed. And it was so different from anything I had ever done. You know, I'm a Catholic nun. I taught in school. I I worked in a a Catholic parish with helping people to understand about the scriptures and out in the suburbs. I had never been into a you know, in a poor neighborhood before, but I had made the decision to get involved with justice and moved into an African-American neighborhood, almost like another country of how the police treated people, what the schools were like. Nobody had health care, all kinds of stuff. So that invitation to write a letter, I said, yeah, sure, I could do that. So I was learning all along the way. And that is what Dead Man Walking is, taking the reader with me, whom I presume does not know a whole lot about the death penalty either, because Most people are not involved in that. And in the process, I'm going to learn huge difference a lawyer makes at your trial because constitutional rights, it's just words on a paper. Unless you have somebody to actualize those rights for you in real life situations, you know? And so that was a big learning thing. And then the experience itself of of the execution. I was just so appalled, but of the crime itself too, that Pat Sonier, the first person that I ever visited on death row and his brother, had killed two teenage kids in cold blood. But in the first draft of the book, I was so into the human rights of the person, Pat Sonia, who should not be executed by the government. I spent a whole lot of time in the whole first part of the book. When the editor got the first draft, he went to New York, sat down with him. He said, nobody's going to read your book because you wait so long before you talk about the victims. You are so into the human rights of this guy that if you don't talk about the killing of these two teenage kids shot in the... <clears throat> Dang, I hate this. <clears throat> if in the first 10 pages of this book, you don't take people into that sugarcane field in Louisiana where those two teenage kids are shot right in the back of the head and feel the horror of it yourself and the outrage, nobody's going to read the book because they're going to say, well, she's a Catholic nun. She believes in Jesus. She's supposed to forgive all this you got to take them there. And then your job in the book is to take your reader with you on this thin little wire you got to walk, then to take them into the execution and witness the execution with you. The whole protocol, the way the execution team trains, the way he's brought to the death house to be killed three days before, everything about it. Give every detail of what it's like. Take them with you. And then they walk with you. And then they're with you when you say to him, look at my face when they do this. And how it was electrocution, how they pulled the switch three times, how they put a mask over his face right before they killed him so the witnesses would not see what happened to a human face as they killed. And then the rationale underneath it all. 
about why they felt justified in doing this. And then, of course, the victim's family, too. And you have to admit you made a big mistake, and I did. I didn't know what to do with the victim's family when I first got involved. A young man, David LeBlanc, and a young woman, Loretta Bork, had been killed. The girl was 18. David was 17. They had gone to a football game on a Friday night, and they, their parents then never saw him alive again. The girl's father especially was very angry. Every time the press would interview him, how he wanted to pull the switch himself. And I'd thought about, well, maybe I ought to go see him. But then I thought, I'm the spiritual advisor to the people who've killed their children. They're not going, I'm the last person in the world they're going to want to see. You're giving spiritual comfort. Our children didn't have any spiritual comfort. And I avoided, I didn't do anything. I didn't even write him a note to say I was sorry about their child. So Jason, he said, well, you're kind of letting yourself off easy here, aren't you? He said, it was a big mistake, wasn't it? Uh, and I said, well, yeah. And then he looked at me and he looked me right in the eyes and he said, well, it was cowardice, wasn't it? He was scared. I said, well, yeah. So he said, when you write your book, don't just take people with you on the peaks of the waves where you do it all right. Take them into your mistakes because then you will be trustworthy to them that you're a real human being and they expect you to tell the truth. Now, in that story that you were just referencing with the football game, is that all the same? The teenage kids had gone to a football game on a Friday night. Afterwards, they went to a place to park where teenagers used to like to go. It was near where we have a lot of sugarcane in, in Louisiana where it had been harvested. And there was a place. And the two Sonia brothers knew where teenagers used to go. And this had been a pattern with other teenage kids. Some of the girls had been raped. It had been a pattern. And it's a complex case, but they would pose as security guards. The kids are parked there. You're trespassing. We have to take you to the owners. Tell you what, if the girl has sex with us, we won't report you. That had happened with about five other couples. Later, as all the truth came out of it, <clears throat> which didn't make it into the trial, Eddie Sonier, the brother that got a life sentence, he was a younger brother. He's actually the one who killed the kids that night. So here I was with these two brothers being with them, and the truth was coming out. Oh, my God. Pat's the one who's going to be executed. Eddie's the one. I mean, and Eddie tried to do what he could to try to save his brother. He, In fact, the day that Pat was executed, there was a letter in the newspaper to the governor from Eddie Sonier. Please, governor, you're killing the wrong man. I'm the one who did it. But nobody would believe him because they said, you got out of the death penalty. Now you're just trying to save your brother. Eddie's story is in Dead Man Walking, too. And it was because he was in an emotionally very volatile situation of what happened that night. Somewhere in the process between the boy and him, and he had a short, short fuse, there was an exchange. And uh, it seems that the young guy had said to him, put down that gun and I'll show you who's a man. Flash, finger on trigger, bang, 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 bang. And one of the deepest learnings for me is entering into the lives of people like Eddie. Here he had killed these kids. And it was this moment. In fact, when he told me about it and I looked into his eyes, he was admitting, yeah, I did it. But he could see he couldn't even comprehend. Sometimes when we do things whose consequences are so terrible, when we're in the moment and it happens, the consequences are so terrible, it's hard to comprehend. And I could see he really didn't comprehend. I was with Pat as he was executed, and then in the very next visit, when I was beginning to visit him too, 
he held up for me a cross he had a fellow inmate make in the welding shop. And it was a little stainless steel cross with a little green center. And the only way he could get money to pay the inmate for that cross was by giving his plasma because they paid them pitifully in Louisiana, in all of our prisons. You start off by getting two and a half cents an hour, but he got $7.50 for selling his plasma, gave it to the inmate, made that cross. He gave it to me. It's the only cross that I have that was purchased with someone's blood. So it's very special to me. I wear it all the time. But Eddie's journey then, it's to accompany Eddie afterwards. And the warden did let him come to Pat's funeral. And I always remember he walked into the funeral home. His hands are handcuffed to this belt around his waist. And he's surrounded. He had two guards accompanying him, leg irons on too. Walks up. There we're standing. There's Pat now. We had his head bandaged because they had shaved his head in electrocution. He burned badly. And he looks down and he says, now three people are dead because of me. And so I accompanied him. He he lived until he was almost 70 years old and he died in prison. But that dignity that he had, Eddie, you have a dignity. You are more than that act. And you could see the goodness in him. So I arranged for other people to start visiting him too. And there were moments we would be sitting around having a meal together. People would be telling jokes. And he was a human being among other human beings. And then he died. He died of a heart attack. So both brothers, I have that picture right here in front of me. You know, similar to all of the topics throughout this, I expect it to make me think of a lot of things. Before I go down the road of kind of the act, did you continue to work with more and more inmates? Did kind of your work in this area expand from there? And how many would you say that you ended up working with over the years? Still doing it. I'm with my seventh person now, Manuel Ortiz from El Salvador. He's the third innocent one. This thing's so broken. I've been with a lot of innocent people. The truth doesn't come out at trial. Partly because they're all poor and that they don't have a good lawyer and the truth doesn't come out. But after Pat was executed, the lawyer, a Millard farmer who had tried to save his life, he had other cases, people he was representing. And he said, you could be on our team. They need someone like you. And so I continued. The second story in the book is Robert Lee Willie. He was the second. And so there have been with six people who've been executed. And so Manuel's the seventh. I take one person at a time and accompany them to the end. I've gotten involved with some other cases along the way uh, where I can be of help. Uh, mainly get media attention, getting lawyers, people who call for my help who are innocent, but mainly Manuel's my man and been accompanying him. And so what did that end up looking like? Would you talk to them, you know? Yeah, visit, visit for several hours. Also get other people in their lives, you know, to be there for them, to write to them, to visit them, because it's so stark. I mean, you're in a death row cell that's like maybe eight feet by 10 feet, 23 out of 24 hours a day, sensory deprivation in all kinds of ways. And so to visit, to be able to get that money in their account so that they can get music, get music, listen to music. But it's the people connection. People connection is the secret of life. It is what makes everything hum. It is what makes everything alive in our lives, whether we're doing a business or whatever we're doing. It's that connectedness to people that's everything. And uh, so my work, my mission 
is to get out to the public the steady accompaniment and visits of people one at a time on death row to see them through is what I do. And that's one of the huge differences between what you do and what I do. And just to mention a little bit of what I do is I work with youth in all of the mental health institutions across our city. And so that includes uh, homelessness, group homes. We have a school for teen mothers. We have a school for youth with addictions. But then where I spend most of my day to day is in a prison for uh, youth, 14 to 21, who are serving the most serious of crimes uh, here in Ottawa, Canada. And so I think one of the big differences differences that it sounds like I'm hearing is because our kids are really kids who have committed these crimes for one and maybe the difference in the way that it's treated when you're not on death row they're in, they're going and doing things throughout the day you know welding shop construction school these kinds of things going and playing basketball and that must be one of the massive differences that would exist on death row compared to let's say a regular prison is that accurate yeah yeah the activities but see, the heart of what you do and what I do is the same. I mean, you know, it, oh, I'd love to interview you because isn't the heart of what you do in that visit, the fact that you're going there to visit with them, it's saying to them, you're a human being. I believe in you. I mean, the fact that you're there, if you they were thrown away people who didn't have any hope, you wouldn't be coming. What are you doing coming? And so the nature of the conversations, but always, even when I write to people in prison, you have a dignity that no one can take from you. Because when you have done something and you made a mistake, you tend to identify yourself so much with it. Are you so angry at the injustice system? It's never going to be. Even Canada, which is much better than the United States. Injustice is going to happen along the way. And you can be spending your life just so mad at what they've done to you that it's hard to be whole and hard to pull out of it. You know, is that what you find? Absolutely. And something that is really interesting when we were talking earlier about storytelling, it made me think of the idea of uh, trauma and to use kind of a, an annoying buzzword sometimes with the idea of a trigger, right? I've worked with youth who have they themselves been the victims of rape and kidnapping, and then they're able to go put that story in a book, no problem. Whereas others who have gone through, I would never try to say lesser or more serious things, but have gone through other difficulties in their lives and can't even remotely um, have anything remind them of it without struggling, right? And so it's so interesting, I find on the victim side that a lot of people deal with it so differently as well. Um, I'm sure you've found that over the years too, that some sort of forgive and others just never do. H how do you find that sort of thing? Over 90% of people on death row were abused as kids. I mean, that's massive. And then one day they take it out on some innocent victim. And then that's why the prison system is so horrible. Instead of restoring life. And I happen to know a little bit about the trigger thing and the trauma because I work with some of the best mitigation specialists in the United States, Charlotte Holman and other people, Denny LaBeouf, also who has worked with in capital cases and is actually working in Guantanamo right now representing the people, a lot of whom, Justin, they haven't even gotten a charge. They just have been holed up in Guantanamo and terrible torture. And I've heard them talk a lot about it and about the whole thing of the, the cue, the trigger, and your back, that what trauma does, what it damages in the brain is memory. So when that trigger happens, you're back. It's the same situation, and you're operating out of that same kind of survival. I've never had any training in any of this, just the experience with people. 
What makes people whole again is, first of all, having somebody like you to talk to. First of all, who's present, comes to see them, cares enough to be there, and then has enough of uh, understanding of what they've been through, can stand with them. And that compassion, that's what compassion is. I haven't been through what you've been through, but I hear what you're saying, and here's what I hear, and I feel with you. And now I'm with you, and let me walk with you, and maybe you can, we together can come through this, because I'm here for you. I am here for you. And to me, after that first visit to Pat Sonier, I knew the most important thing on my side was going to be fidelity because his whole life had been broken promises. So I said I was coming to see you. I'm coming to see you. And I would I'd tell him ahead of time so he could look forward to the visit and come hell or high water. I even went, I didn't know there were tornadoes all over the place. I knew the weather was bad, but it's a two and a half dry, hour drive from New Orleans. Fidelity. And it took a long time for Eddie to trust. Took years for Eddie to trust that I'd be there for him. In time, it happens. It's the most precious thing we can give to each other. And we could just talk a whole time about what gifts you've gotten. It's always mutual. It's never, we are the wonderful, generous givers and these poor, weak, wounded human beings. And we pour ourselves out on, it's what they give us. All human exchanges truly, between two human beings, when they are worthy of the name, it's always going to be mutual gifts in some way. Absolutely. I find it can be difficult to explain this to people who aren't in it as you and I have found ourselves in our lives. Right. And so I get this sense sometimes, even when I'm in the prison where I know there's so many locked doors between me and the outside world even, and so many people, the majority of society who has no idea what goes on within these walls. And here I am sitting maybe with four or five youth who have committed murder and that's what they're being charged with. And I'm finding so many things to celebrate in them as a person. Oh, yeah, sure. They're making gains in something like making music or art or poetry reading skills or whatever, you can go down the list, right? Because it, it depends on what their interests are. That's great. I always wonder and find in trying to talk to people who haven't been in there for a, an extended period of time that it's really hard to explain it to other people. Do, do you find it difficult? No, you know what? Boy, that is a big mystery. I mean, no, it's not a mystery at all. You, you know, the work of Brian Stevenson, you know, Just Mercy, he says proximity. Who, who do we meet? Who are we with? Who do we have lunch with? And people in prison have been relegated in society's mind, you know, with such a label put on them. Bad people did bad things. We'll continue to do bad things. Without that real meeting, I realize my role is to be a kind of mediator through story to bring people into the experience because they're so separated, especially people on death row, that people were made to be so afraid of people on death row. They were told by prosecutors, by people running for public office, these people are so evil. The only thing we can do is kill them to protect ourselves. We can't put them in prison. They're natural born killers. They're going to kill other inmates and guards. And people have this exaggerated sense in their mind. It's actually a stereotype. It's not real people. The University of Oregon has what they call this inside-outside program. And so there are 12 honor students studying Russian literature, Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, uh, with 12 prisoners in one of the prisons in Oregon. They study Russian literature together, and they're actually taking the course together. So the 12 students, privileged kids, going to the university, 
12 people in prison, usually for a long time. They study the literature together and they meet each other as human beings. And there's story after story after story. I met this person. Oh, but this person is a human being. And it's how can we enable that connection? So if they write their stories and people can read it. It's a really interesting book by Lynn Hunt, The Inventing of Human Rights. And it was about epistolary novels of women in the 18th century. So Women then so oppressed, you were made to marry a man. Here's a young woman made to marry an older man. Women had no voice. They they were just very oppressed in British society. And Lenhunt did this study that showed that when men would read the stories of these women and what they went through, some of them were weeping at the end of the book because they had no way of getting into women's experience. They were just such in such subservience in the society. And it built a path of compassion from men to the women's experience. And then she builds on that to just show how stories and people sharing their direct experience with another, even if it's in a book, you can build those paths of compassion. And of course, films can do that too, as Dead Man Walking did, because the ones losing out are the ones who never get to know these kids and know the richness and goodness that can be in people. And so we have to do all we can, those of us that are in both worlds, to be the bridge and to help to enable that communication and compassion to happen, I think. Right. And I I love that, the idea of storytelling as the bridge. It's kind of one of the things we talked about with a book, with a movie, this podcast. I try and do it through photography. And right now, a lot of the students that I work with are really working in the area of hip hop. You know, their background is I want to be a rapper. I want to, if I'm going to get out, if I'm going to get out of this, you know, world I've found myself in, it's it's either going to be sadly from from shooting someone, being shot or succeeding in the rap game. That's that's like the three options that they've given themselves in many times. It's like, that that is language right but this is a fascinating thing i'm already speaking about it in such a natural way because i live oh, it man. with That's them great, and breathe it with them every day whereas if i explain it to just a cousin i haven't seen in a while over dinner they won't know what the heck i'm talking about you, you mentioned something uh, a few times that really made me think of a quote that i posted the other day and it was that we are all so much more similar than we are different and i think biologically it's something like 99.9%, right? So this is something that fascinates me. You know, we if, if we get a new student in who's committed a very terrible crime, let's put it that way, something horrendous to a victim's family, it's still such a small part of who they are, right? And I know at the risk of this being sort of a, a, an echo chamber or somewhere where you and I agree with everything and we're just talking, have you seen or, or can you tell some stories about some of the positive things you've seen from people who have done very difficult things? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that that connection, when you said that 99% were more similar, just our connection with the earth, with nature, where we're 90, our DNA is 99% the same as chimpanzees. We are connected. That's the whole thing of connection. Oh, God, I could tell you plenty. Um, one of the things I can tell you about Pat Sonia, so here's the brother, he's going to be executed, right? And his brother, it, it got life. Even when he told me the story at the trial, when Eddie was being tried, and he could see that Eddie was losing it on the stand, and he was about to blurt out, he, Pat, took the lawyer's arm, put his hand on it, and said, stop the questioning, because Eddie was about to reveal he had really, and so he took it, he saved Eddie 
from blurting out at his own trial that he had done it. That was one thing that happened. And the other thing here, Pat, he's about to be killed. He's saying to me, sister, you can't be there because this is going to be terrible. And I want to spare you. I don't want you to be scarred by watching this. And you just think about it that somebody, when we're dying, everybody wants somebody there with them. But because he cared about me, he was saying to me, you can't be there at the end because it could scar you. Robert Lee Willie, the second guy that I was with, he was the bad boy. He was the one he had been to Marion, the, the federal penitentiary. He had the swastika tattooed on his arm. And when Tim was doing the film of Dead Man Walking, he took some of those really hard, tough things about uh, Robert Lee Willie's character and put it with Pat to give the Matthew Ponsler, really tough guy. So one of the things when you're on death row is you don't want to call attention to your case. You're just trying to stay under the wire and be quiet, not to call attention to yourself or to make them mad at you in any way to try to save yourself from death. But Robert Lee Willie entered, he, there was a class action lawsuit from inmates who were willing to do it about the conditions on death row that were terrible. And Robert Lee Willie put his name in there to be one of the plaintiffs in the complaint, and no matter what they did to him. So it was a self-sacrificing thing where you put yourself out for others. So that was Robert Lee Willie, too. And then many, many, many kindnesses. You know, here's like Manuel on death row, and he has a guy next to him for years. He's going on, look, at this is so staggering, 29 years still trying to show his innocence. So here is an inmate put in the cell next to you, and they can't read. He teaches him to read. I mean, you know, are people losing it, you know, because they mentally have a lot of challenges? Talks them down, calms them down. I mean, Manuel is such an exemplary character that the warden would put the most problematic people in the cell next to him because knew that he could be a peacemaker. And it, human beings do that with each other all the time. And I've seen it over and over again. It's, it's fascinating to watch the things that other people would, would witness if they could. And I often, I have this weird sensation while I'm in a, in a prison too, where I feel like, okay, I'm witnessing this. If somebody else who doesn't get it, who doesn't have as much compassion or understanding were to see like a bird's eye view, or they were to come in for a tour one day, they would look at this situation and be like, wait, that's the one who did the thing I read about in the newspaper? And they'd be almost shocked because, you know, for the last 700 days, they've operated in this way of being helpful, kind, not necessarily overcompensating, just being who they are, except for in that moment when the thing happened. And one way that I like to put it for people, and I don't know if I'm right in this because it's not like I've studied it, but I feel like I always say the, the a saying similar to, it's not an excuse, but it's a reason, yeah, right. right? There's always this underlying reason around their impulsivity, or even if it's a chronic thing where they're getting up to a lot of bad stuff chronically, it doesn't matter. Matter. There's there's always this, this underlying reason. And I think that's partially why I've never really second guessed the idea. I've never had to tell myself to be compassionate. I've just always understood that their behavior is what we can see. And it's coming from something lying underneath. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like if somebody's on the spectrum or just the whole thing of being young, your brain's not even fully developed for judgment, maturity. I could look at my own life, you know. I just wrote this book, River of Fire, on becoming an activist just about growth and maturity and making connections between things. You know, we grow. One of the things I've been thrown back on a lot is just how protected and cushioned I've been. Throw me into chaos and you watch Helen Prejean and what she's going to do when she's scared and she's in a situation and something's going wrong. 
because I know I have that inbuilt cowardice in me to do things when I'm afraid or to tell a lie to protect myself. And so I always cut people slack because I go, but I've been protected from that. I've never been tested with that. Give me that kind of childhood. Like Robert Willie. Robert Willie was out on the streets when he was like maybe 13 or 14, fending for himself, having to get money. So you get into drugs to get the money, growing his little marijuana patch out in the woods, having to protect it from other people, growing their little marijuana patch out in the woods, getting into fights, struggling with a guy in a river. They're fighting and he ends up drowning the guy. He didn't set out to drown a human being. They got in a fight and it was nip and tuck right there in the river. The guy drowns. He wasn't a killer who set out to kill people. So once you get in and you know the story, you know the uh, motto among the lawyers now doing the mitigation, when you go into a case for trial, the word is the one who tells the whole story wins the case. In in Death of Innocence, there's a story of Bob Hill, the lawyer, and Jeremy Gross. In This was a case in Indiana, and Jeremy Gross killed a guy at a convenience store. And it was recorded on three videos. And you see Jeremy coming in, and he's coming to get money for drugs. He's got to get the money for the drug. You see him coming in to the store, and you see him with a gun, and he knew the convenience store owner. And then you just see him firing, bang, bang, bang. And you see the convenience store owner going, why, Jeremy? Why? And he's shooting him and shooting him. And then so you see the convenience store owner collapse. And then you see him grabbing in the uh, in the cash register, running out. Then you see the poor convenience owner dragging himself across the floor to try to reach a pay phone and the, with the receiver dangling. And he dies in a pool of blood. And this is Indiana. Indiana was a place where the Ku Klux Klan was strong. They were bad, bad on the death penalty for a number of years. And Bob's got to represent Jeremy Gross to a jury and plead for his life that he not be killed. So what is he going to do? The first thing he does is show the video. Everybody sees the crime. So the acknowledgement of guilt. And then when you come to the sentencing part of the trial, Bob Hill introduced it to the jury. You've seen Jeremy Gross when he came into the convenience store and what he did. And now I want to tell you the story of Jeremy before he came to the convenience store. And he tells the story. He had visited the mother over 10 times and many phone calls to get that mother to be able to come and publicly acknowledge she had abused her child. It was a story of abuse, but it was also partly the story of when the state for about nine months had taken Jeremy out of that family where he had been, was being so abused into a foster family, where with the foster family, and he gets the father of that family to come to testify his experience with Jeremy when he was in their house and part of their family, and how he sat with them at the family meals, how his grades picked up, how he was in Little League baseball. And the jury must have noted that the only time that there was eye contact when Jeremy actually looked up was when this father, his foster father, came to speak for him. And the father choked. He choked up and said, we wanted to adopt Jeremy, but then the state took him away again and put him back in the family. So Bob had to show that jury that look at the hope, give him a chance. Look how he responded. So there's 
The one who tells the whole story wins the case. There's always more to us than the, the one terrible thing or the pattern of things when we're operating in bad habits because that's what we know to survive. Gangs. When you don't have family, you everybody needs a family, you know, and so you join a gang. And just to understand, put yourself there. What, what would you do? Yeah. The gang thing. That's interesting because when we have youth who get out, because a lot of times they aren't in there, again, it's not necessarily death row, right? For our kids, they're young, they're getting out. They return to that life within 24 hours. And it's a vicious cycle until they become 18. And it's almost predictable. Sadly, they'll often at that point go and do something that will get them more something like life. And that's where it's very hard for me is trying to figure out what can we do to support these people with their their skill sets when they're younger and while they're on sort of on the inside. And one thing I've noticed is that they all have creativity skills and entrepreneurial skills. Have you found that some of those innate abilities exist with the people that you've worked with over the years? Oh, man. I mean, creativity in human beings. What I have right now is a death row inmate, Bobby Hampton in Louisiana, using the threads of his socks or different colors from socks and glue has done a whole probably 10 by 16 inches of the Last Supper. It's Jesus and the disciples, all made with threads, different colored threads, sitting around the table, and Jesus there with the bread and the wine there in the center. Now you want to put the capital C on the creativity that, you know, the New Orleans Saints are a big team. Everybody loves the New Orleans Saints. This is Louisiana. Everyone of Jesus and the apostles, they have the Saints emblem somewhere on their sleeve of their shirt. It's Jesus and the apostles at the Last Supper with the Saints theme. I mean, I was so amused when I saw it, like Jesus and, and the saint. And it's beautiful. You can't believe he did it just with the threads of socks and glue. Is there any way to get a photograph of that or to see it? I can go get it for you. I mean, you can look at it. I could take it with my phone, send it to you. Yeah, that'd be really neat to see, to add to this sort of story. I, I'd be fascinated. And that's something that I've noticed all the time. And that's what's become my life's work. And, you know, I feel like I'm at somewhat the beginning, middle, I suppose, but the beginning of my journey of really finding my life's work is becoming how do I help youth or adults who struggle with fitting into society because they are creative, they are entrepreneurial, but we don't set up society as that's the easy path, right? They need mentors or they need courses and the courses are expensive and it's still a monopoly by the wealthy and those who have an easier path to entrepreneurship or becoming a musician or something because they can afford the guitar. And so that's where I'm really trying to figure these things out. Um, one last last thing that I wanted to be sure and ask you was that threads all these things together is the art of storytelling. I find that they are good storytellers, but more importantly, you are a tremendous storyteller. And I want to give some, some insight into what would you say are some good tips for being a good storyteller? Well, first of all, you you're really folksy about it. You, you don't try to do this perfect kind of language to do things. You just kind of get in there and tell your story. And what makes your story worth sharing? It's just because it's a human story. Let me tell you what happened to me. And then to be really honest when you're telling the story and to put in good details when you're telling your story, you know, about what it was like. When I'm telling the story in Dead Man Walking, I'm going into the death house of the day of execution. And there in the front door on either side are big pots with geraniums. Sitting next to that is the guard with an AK-47 gun. And I'm walking into this building. 
and you give details of your story, and then you share your feelings as you're going through the story and what it was like. Tolstoy, the famous Russian writer, said nobody likes to hear stories about happy families. The mama was happy. The daddy was happy. He had a job. All the children were in school. Everybody's doing well. Who wants to hear those stories? So right off, People who have had struggles in their life and had to struggle to overcome are a natural storyteller that have an interesting story that people will want to hear because it's you up against the odds. And also that includes story of the failure, story of the failure, story of the failure, but then also the story of when you begin to get it right. Playing a guitar, everything. You, you fail at stuff before you get it. And it's just that striving that's the heart of the story. And that you are willing to share your story with other people is a great gift because any inner revelation of ourselves is a gift. And of course, you got to be in a safe environment. You don't just throw your pearls out in front of any, but to be able to have that honesty and you share your story because you care about other people and you think maybe in some kind of way by hearing my story it could help you some way. And that's absolutely why being able to have the opportunity to do an interview with someone like you is certainly the case. It'll help more than one person, I am sure of. And and that idea of hope, if I were to bring you into the prison I work with, let's say a, a kid is tried, sentenced, and he's 15, but he knows that he'll be getting out of prison when he's 21, and he has to go out into the world. What would you say to that kid? He has six years on the inside to prepare for the outside. What would you say to him? I love uh, your motto that's on your email. You just keep learning. You keep learning. Learn something new and learn about relationships with people. Keep learning. Who, who am I now? Because we change, you know, and to develop relationships. It's tough. I mean, and, and when you're in a prison environment too, you can get to be close to somebody and then all of a sudden they get moved, but to develop relationships. Because if we don't develop relationships, we are alone in the world. We can easily turn in on ourselves and become bitter. Relationships are what make life sparkle. And to learn how to be a good friend, to learn to be a good friend, to learn to be honest, to learn not to, you know, sell people down the river, to learn not to use people to get. Everybody's learning that, whether you're inside a prison or out, is learning how to be friend and how learning how basically to love other people, but to love yourself. I've kept a journal since I was in my 20s. Journaling is hugely important because no matter how you're feeling and you're swirling around inside, you got all these emotions, get a page and you get a pen and even just start drawing the clouds and all the crazy stuff and a word here of your emotions and just putting them out like a little storm on the page. And then to just try to move to a place of quiet. What has made me feel this angry? What has triggered this? And to just start writing the simplest, simplest words. When we put something on a page, we exteriorize what the turmoil is inside. And that then to write in briefest language to yourself. Even at times we have two voices within ourselves. Now there's, you know, this whole way of journaling in which I have on one side of the page that angry or that script inside my head I learned as a kid. I hear my dad saying, you'll never amount to anything. 
that script we get as we grow up. And then on the other side, the script that we ourselves are building about who we are and put them down on a page together just helps put it out there, then helps us take it in and then learn, read, 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 talk to other people, ask them questions, and then put that in your journal. This is what Bob next door, this is what he said. I mean, you know, that to me is life. I love it. People are always fascinated when I tell them that our youth learn to read really well in prison because they don't have a lot of other time to do things, right? They go through so many books and they never read before. I do a couple theme questions to wrap, but I did want to give you a chance to speak to the idea of what your editor spoke to in The Cowardice and the idea of the victim's family. You know, we've talked a lot about those who are on death row or those who are in prisons or the people who serve in crimes like that I work with. But I'm curious, after Dead Man Walking, writing that book, doing the movie, have you worked more with the victims' families over the years too? How, how did that kind of play out for you? Well, that was a big thing. We started a group. If very seldom do I ever directly get to help the victims' family of the one on death row that I'm taking because it's such a seesaw. Uh, because they're made to see. I mean, the prosecutor emphasizes anybody against the execution's not your friend. But started a group called Survive for Victims' Families. They need groups of support and love and healing. They don't need to wait 20 years and then be told they're going to watch as the state kills the one who killed their loved ones. And I stay in touch with victims' families that I have met over the years in different states. Bud Welch, whose daughter Julie was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, when I go to Oklahoma, I always stay with Bud with his wife. And he lost Julie. He was the first victims' family. And I love telling their stories, see, because they're the ones who really teach us how you come out of the anger and bitterness. Actually, forgive means to give before. It doesn't mean to condone. As Lloyd LeBlanc, the father of David LeBlanc, was killed, he, he was my biggest teacher. And he said, people think forgiveness is weak. And before the execution, Lloyd LeBlanc had everybody telling him. They knew about Lloyd that he didn't want Pat to be executed. And they're saying to him, Lloyd, cultural pressure, Lloyd, if you're not for the death penalty, it looks like you didn't love your boy. And he had to work out of that his own anger that they killed his precious son. And all he could think was the anger, the anger. I want to kill them. I want to kill them. But then he noticed that he was losing who he was, that he had always been a kind person. He always liked to help people. He was becoming a bitter, angry, closed up man. And when he was telling me this of how he broke through, he put his hand out like this, stop. And he just said, and then I said, uh-uh, they killed my son, but I'm not going to let him kill me. And he began to make his way then out of it to be true to himself. So I had a relationship with him, ongoing relationships with Bud Welch and then other people I know as well. The hero of Dead Man Walking actually is Lloyd LeBlanc and his arising out of that hatred after the loss of his son and the path that he showed of where you can go for healing. Those are amazing stories. And unfortunately, there's so many of them, or, you know, I guess it's in some ways human nature too, in this uh, cycle of positive, negative, circle of life and death. And I just, I appreciate being able to hear some of those stories. And the last thing I always do is I wrap it up with some theme questions. And uh, the first one is something that you would pass on to the next generation if you were to leave just one piece of advice for that next generation. To find work and purpose in your life and do what you love. Do what you love. There's a Sufi mystic who said, let what you love be what you do. To find purpose and do what you love. Not to try to make a lot of money and all that. 
do what you love. That's that's amazing. And I think that's one of the keys, not to open up the can of worms about custody and prison and things, but if we could figure that out for a lot of people, I think they would find themselves in better situations. One thing you yourself are learning that maybe people wouldn't know. Let me tell you, I am taking a real interest in what is going on in our country, and I am learning. I mean, we have huge changes happening in the United States. I'm learning a lot about systemic racism. When I was in the St. Thomas Housing Projects, African-American people became my teachers. And it was the first time I even heard the word white privilege. So I am learning that. I'm also really looking at how politics works in the United States. And I'm learning to listen to politicians for their policies and what they do, not for all this crazy talk. It has been crazy. So I've been reading Really reading a lot about that. I'm listening, listening to podcasts about it too. I'm fascinated. I think learning, as long as we are learning, we are alive. It's when we stop learning and we we become so predictable and everything seems the same. The definition of boredom, where nothing changes and everything's the same. But as long as we are learning, and this whole thing you mentioned about reading, this is in, in Tolkien, in Lord of the Rings. I think it's in The Hobbit. But the character said was that when we are in pain, if we can learn something new, while we're learning something new, we cannot simultaneously attend to our pain. When we learn something new, our mind, heart, and emotions are there. And so to keep learning something new helps us to deal with the pain. We have to deal with pain and loss. We have to face it head on. But anytime we're learning something, when we're reading and we're learning, you can't simultaneously be attending to how sorry that we can feel for ourselves. There've been a couple of very serendipitous moments in this interview, and that's one of them because the just keep learning mentality that I try and preach is based really in mental health, right? Uh, the idea that our minds, I like to use the acronym mental illness needs different solutions when I think of minds and goes back to exactly that. I myself with so many struggles, stressors, and uh, and difficulties over the years learned that if I was learning something new, I didn't feel any of that anxiety and things. And Justin, you know who said that? The Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama said, when people rub us the wrong way or whatever, always to be asked, this is a deep Buddhist thing, what am I supposed to learn? What is this life event teaching me? What can I learn from this? That's huge. Yeah. And I'm uh, whatever. I'm fortunate. I won't say lucky. I guess I'll say fortunate to have, I don't know, had that mindset since I was like 12 years old or something. So that's great. That's why you're fun to talk to. See conversations with people that are real. Have conversations with people that are real, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And so this final question may lead us somewhere there too, because it's where I get to, to flip it. And I like to ask my guests to ask me a question that from this talk or anything else that they think may help my audience learn something, what would be a question you would ask me? Well, you say, since you were 12, wait, let me get this right. Since you were 12, you got, you had this thing about keep learning. So I I think as long as I can remember, I've always taken a learning stance, I guess, uh, when something's been happening in life. Um, I've never really felt a victim in the sense of like being wronged or something, because when somebody's been, let's say someone's been an asshole to me or something, right? I've always, for some reason been interested in like the psychology of that person. Why are they doing that? Why do people act like this? As opposed to really feeling 
personally hurt or victimized. That's as long as I can remember, really. Now, that's incredible. You never felt victimized? Man, when I was little, I felt like they were picking on me and you never felt that. Oh. I can remember being picked on. People called me names, but that was certainly younger, like, you know, four years old, five years old, six years old. I can remember a lot of that. Uh, And it's funny because it sounds like I'm talking completely uh, from a place of privilege. And in in many cases, people have tried (laughs) to do many hurtful, harmful things. Very, and even in my adult life, very serious things things. Very quickly, a lot of people can say, oh, why me? Why him? Why this? I've just never had that. It's just been a natural thing where I'm interested in learning. You know, if I have a boss who's really mean or somebody who tries to make the workplace toxic or teammates who would try and make a a place toxic in high school or something. Yeah. Or or the high school bully would be a good example, right? I've always just been interested in like, why, why are they like that? And I've tried to explain to other people that it's actually freeing for ourselves to have that mindset, to constantly be learning about other people as opposed to taking it personally, I guess. And that's helped with working with foster care and stuff too. Well, Justin, you know what? That's an incredible gift. And even when you explain it, just for a person to be in your presence, to just say, look at him. You have an incredible, some kind of gift of self and a sense of confidence within yourself that you can do this. I mean, this is not a usual thing. Because somebody like me, if somebody says something mean to me or something like that, or I know somebody's speaking negatively, I mean, I don't follow the instincts because I've learned it, you know. But to be able to live life in a way, what can I learn from this? That's the Dalai Lama, for goodness sake. Am I talking to the Dalai Lama? (laughs) It's just a great thing. I'll take that as a compliment, no doubt. I mean, look, I'm going to take that away from this conversation myself, Justin, because it's what we got to do. And here's the thing. No matter how other people are, you know, responding, it's like, what's my response going to be to ask ourselves that we can operate and learn to act out of our own integrity? What do I desire? What do I want to do? You've given me a sense of that in our conversation together. You know, the most stressful thing about it for me, I've learned in my adult years is um, trying not to border on the idea of sort of toxic positivity, right? <laughs> I love that. Trying to explain that I'm, I'm welcome to people feeling sadness. And I think the misconception when you're a happy person and you, and you try to explain something like I tried to explain in a few minutes as opposed to having a, a thesis to explain it is that I also have an equal appreciation for sadness and anger and I welcome that because I think they're just as important as happiness and fear and all these things and that's one of those freeing things too it's what you do with it do you make poetry with your sadness do you take your angry and go for a run mm-hmm. and I think that's where things get confused is I never want somebody to try and block anger or sadness No, you descend into it. You really have to descend into your sadness, descend into your anger. I mean, you really have to go there. Exactly. And I think you'll appreciate this. I heard someone who teaches Hollywood actors how to uh, become more confident. I'd never heard this before. And he said, you putting uh, tissues in someone's eyes when they're crying sadness is like me putting toilet paper in your butt when you have diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) Graphic, but to the point. (laughs) All right. I'll tell you this. 
He said it. <laughs> I think he heard him say it about a year ago, and that's never. It's never I, I've never forgotten it. So you speak of storytelling and things. Obviously, he knows how to make an impact in a quick public speaking thing. <laughs> well, I'm telling you what, and it's so graphic. I'm gonna remember it for the rest of my life. Thank you very much. You're welcome, and a great way to wrap <laughs> because we wouldn't be having this interview if you didn't tell some of those great stories. You know, some ten years ago that I got to hear, and ten years later thought, oh, that's someone I need to speak to. And and uh, similarly, I need to track him down someday, 10 years from now, and ask him to do an interview. Yeah, got to do it. I appreciate you doing this so much. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation and uh, just want to say thank you. Yeah, me too, Justin. Really enjoyed it. Look, love to everybody that you meet, even indirectly from me through you. Tell them I got love for them. You as well. And if you ever need anything, just reach out. Where could people go if they wanted to support your work, whether it's a book or something you're up to? Yeah, well, we got a really strong social media, uh, sisterhelen.org. And we have uh, Facebook and Twitter and everything, you know. And Instagram. Oh, yeah. We do it all. I have a great team. Really carry on in the public discourse, in the public square. We're out there all the time carrying on the conversation. Because you know what I found? That people, the more they understand how the penal system works and the death penalty, they don't want to have the government killing people. And we... We are seeing real changes happen. Interesting little tidbit. In 1976, the very year our Supreme Court put death back, the death penalty back, is the year Canada's parliament did away with the death penalty. That very year, and our countries made two different choices. You chose a life road, and we chose a death road. We have killed 1,500 people. It's a huge thing to understand now with Black Lives Matter. There's awakening that's going on especially about racism in our country. Canada's got it too. We all do. And so I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm learning. Yeah, we've got it big time. The a great book is The Other Side of Eden, which speaks to the indigenous people and basically robbing them of their culture and their language and all of these uh, cultural uh, yeah. genocide things that happened uh, up north Canada. You know, I suppose all we can do is one day at a time well, work to affect some change. Yeah. So thank you for everything you do. Well, good. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. Yeah, look, you too. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. That was a fun one. As always, our guests are doing just incredible things for people, and it's hard to get all of these amazing stories out to the world, so please do pass it along. Thank you to our guest and her entire team, Sister Helen Prejean. They're doing amazing work for making this world a better place. It's our goal to have this in every school in the world, so please do subscribe and leave a review, but most importantly, pass it on to someone who might benefit from the show. Until the next episode, all the best, and remember, just keep learning.